Well, given the time change, I have two different times, one on my phone and a different time on my tablet, so I'm just going to ignore time. <laughs> Actually, it shouldn't take long because we're just going to talk a little bit about nothing. But uh, as you know, we've completed the Old Testament uh, book by book all the way through over the last couple of years, and, um, and we're now in between Malachi and Matthew. It's my intention to begin with the New Testament in the new year, so we have some time for me to take a couple of weeks' holidays and you to have some other things we've prepared for you on Sunday mornings and also for me to, to explore a little bit of, of ideas that bridge the Old and New Testament. And I'm going to start with that today with this, uh, this silent period, this so-called silent period, the silent years is how we've so often heard it referenced between Malachi and Matthew. 400 years without a written prophet, 400 years without a record of God speaking or doing anything. And I don't know if you ever had the silent treatment before or know what that feels like, but I suspect you either have received it or given it. Maybe it went something like this. I don't think she's giving you the silent treatment. I think someone forgot to give her colds for a mouth. It's a pretty chilly relationship, but, um, but it's not her fault. Uh, she doesn't have a mouth, so there you go. But maybe this is more realistic. Uh, honey, could you give me the silent treatment until about 8.30? I suspect he's going to get it a lot longer than 8.30. But it's true. When we're in a relationship, particularly one where we love one another, it doesn't feel good, but sometimes it's the way we respond uh, to the other person. Uh, that, that feeling of distance, that feeling of silence, that refusal to communicate. And usually it indicates that something's wrong in the relationship. And so as we look at the silence of God in the 400 years, I want to just uh, challenge our thinking on that a little bit. And, uh, and maybe, maybe that will be helpful to you as it is to me to, to consider how God actually communicates and uh, what we know about his will and how he enacts it in the world. And so, in order to, to do that, I'm going to step back from the Ma- Malachi to Matthew, and I'm going to begin by looking at another silent period, uh, the 400 years between uh, Joseph and Moses, uh, another period of time in our Bibles where we have no record of God actively being involved or speaking. So if we start here with Joseph in this story, we find that, that uh, Joseph is a story that I think most of you know well. If not, go back into Genesis and read it again. It's a, it's a very uh, engaging story, fun to read, uh, fun to think about, and, and, and teaches us many spiritual things. But when we think about the, the silence or... or uh, voice of God in this story, it's, it's really quite intriguing when you think about it, because we think of Joseph as this person that, that absolutely did God's will and was, was just a strong, consistent, steady follower of God. But right here, at the beginning of his life, he had three dreams. And it was contested whether that was the voice of God or not. Have you ever done that? God spoke to me, and your husband says, ah, I don't think so. Something like that. Well, put that on, uh, on, uh, in, under a magnifying glass and you have the situation as you know. Uh, Joseph's brothers didn't believe God was speaking to him. 
Uh, even Joseph's father didn't seem to put much into it. And, uh, and it was just a dream. It wasn't conclusive evidence that God was speaking. And then you have uh, 30 years of nothing. No activity from God. All the things that happened in his life, the ups and downs, uh, his continued faithfulness and good character, but no indication that God was involved in terms of... Uh, I mean, we can look at it and we, we look back and know that God was involved, but in his lived experience when he was there in those things, we have no evidence that there was anything more than just living one day after the other. And then there's three more dreams which weren't even Joseph's dreams, that were messages from God. And Joseph was given, he accredits it to God as the one who gave him the interpretation of those dreams, of the baker, of the cupbearer, and of the pharaoh. And as a result of those dreams and their interpretation, the, uh, the 12 uh, brothers who would be the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, but still not anywhere near God's promise uh, of a great nation, were brought to Egypt. And they stayed there for 400 years with no indication that God did anything in our Bibles. Now, that's pretty meager for Joseph's life. Just a few dreams, uh, nothing that indicates a direct voice or a clear flash of light or a vision of an angel or something like that. And yet, most of his life was lived in what we sometimes refer to as the silence of God. Now, he, inter- he didn't interpret that as silence. He looked at his life and he said, God was preparing the way for a specific task he had me to do, which was save God's promised people. And then we have the 400 years. And again, I've heard them referred to as the silent years, and um, I wonder if that's accurate. God's promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob who became Israel, was that he would make out of their seed a great nation. That was unlikely to happen in the promised land because that was a land that was highly contested by all the surrounding nations. It's it's a little bit, to understand that properly, you can think today about the wars that have been fought over oil reserves. Okay, Israel was the trade hub. All trade from Babylon to, to Nineveh to to Rome, to, to the North Africa. That was the place where everyone wanted to control that piece of land. It was essential to their economies. How do you grow a great nation out of just a small family in a place that's so highly contested? You, you take them to Egypt. You put them on fertile farmland where they have good nutrition and can grow big and strong and have large families, and you protect them by the strength of the pharaohs. And what happened? Exactly according to God's promise, Abraham's seed became a great nation. So great, in fact, that the pharaohs were afraid of them. And so the pharaohs forced them into into slave labor because they were afraid of this great nation that had grown up in their backyard. That's only half the promise, right? Now they're a great nation, but they need that promised land. And so that's where Moses comes in. And again, Moses is unique in that he had the kind of relationship with God where he spoke face-to-face, frequently, as one would with a friend. But when you look at his story, you see that right at the beginning, there's a little incident that the neighbors may may or may not have interpreted as God's action. His parents put him in a basket and threw him in the river. The daughter of Pharaoh picked him out of the river and raised him as her own. 
But Moses had no experience of that, no memory of that. And he lived for 80 years in complete silence from God. Now we look back on that and we say, well, of course God was doing all of these ups and downs, all of these things to prepare him for the ministry that God had for him. And that is absolutely true. But when Moses was in the desert or growing up in the palace, we have no indication that anything was happening. That he was aware of anything. Now, he may or may not have. God may have spoke to him in dreams. We, there's no record of it, is what I'm saying. There, there's no ev- no, nothing there. Now, once he had the burning bush experience, from then on, his life was rather unique in the biblical stories. And that until his death, he was in close communion with God throughout that time. But we, we can look at others. For example, Abraham the father of faith, as he's sometimes referred to. I know you can't read that, but the colors just represent different places he lived, different periods of time. And so obviously he was a wanderer. He wandered around. And uh, um, if, you, if you go through the story uh, and read it in Genesis, you get the impression that he was in constant communion with God. But if you really think about it, there was really only, depending on how you count, seven or eight times when God directly and specifically and obviously spoke to Abraham. And in between, there was years. In fact, 180 years. Do you think if you lived for 180 years and had seven or eight experiences where you think God spoke to you, that you would think God is constantly talking to me? Or would you sometimes think, I think I'm getting a silent treatment? But yet as we read the story, we know that God was actively and intentionally bringing about the events that would bring about his world and his people in the world. And so uh, we, we see that there. And we can, we can go to someone like Jacob. And again, and Jacob, uh, he's kind of a scoundrel, often uh, thought of as an as example of what, how not to be one of God's children. But with Jacob, we have the, uh, the, the dream of the ladder to heaven, uh, God encouraging him with that uh, indication of his presence and we have the wrestling match with God at the end or or near near the end of the story anyways and then there's a little bit about sheep and rods of wood and stuff in ponds that 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 just is weird and we don't really talk about much because we don't want, know what to make about it uh, but again over the course of an entire lifetime that's not so much is it I want to look at this idea from another, uh, totally take a different track. I'm not going to look at the, the, the life story or the trajectory of the Apostle Paul, but I want to just look at this one verse, these two verses that describe, um, Paul is describing here in his letter to the Galatians his conversion experience. And so we know from Acts that there was the bright light. He had a specific and obvious and in-person Uh, uh, visit from Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior. And uh, he he was blinded. Uh, One of the church members came to him, and the scales fall off his eyes, and he became a follower of Jesus, a member of the church. And uh, here in Galatians, he adds something that's not in the account in Acts. So listen to what he says. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away into Arabia, and later I returned to the city of Damascus. Then three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter and stay with him for 15 days. Now, I want you to pay attention to the space between the comma and the A. 
Now, by cross-referencing into the book of Acts, into Paul's other letters, and the things that we can put together, uh, we have a wide range of ideas. Some people, some biblical historians, assume from this that the three years encompasses that whole time. So he has the road to Damascus experience. He goes into Arabia. He comes back to to Damascus uh, and then goes to Jerusalem. And that total time is three years. But still, from the time of his vision of Jesus until he becomes active in the church is a three-year period that we know nothing about what he did, what he said, what God did. Other biblical historians look at the same evidence and come up with up to, I've heard estimates, up to 14 years between the comma and the A. Now, that's of no material value. Uh, It doesn't matter to our understanding of Paul and to our understanding of what he teaches and what he contributes to us, uh, whether we have an agreement on that or not. But I'm just simply trying to point out that when we read our Bibles, we so often read this story of what God did, and then we read the next story, and we forget that there's often years in between where there's no story. Why is there no story? Because nothing happened. They continued. You look at Abraham. God said, go to a land I will show you. So he starts traveling, and he travels, and he goes here, and he does that, go there, and he does that and that thing. And then eventually God says, now you're in the place. Okay, so what did Abraham do? He continued living in the direction of what he knew of God's will until God changed his direction. So to go back to the silent treatment, I might get it after this from all the women, but you know where I'm going, right? I said I loved you on our wedding day. If it changes, I'll tell you. But that's a little bit like we should understand these stories in the Bible. Uh, Jesus said, you're persecuting me. Turn from your ways. Paul did. And anywhere from 3 to 14 years later, God gave him some further instruction through the apostles that he visited in Jerusalem. And then he followed that direction. And, uh, and then at one point, the next real experience of God's presence, God's voice, was, was where uh, they were gathered in prayer. And God said, set apart for me Paul and Silas to go to the Gentiles. But there's years in between that where his experience of life as a Christian is exactly like yours and mine, just day after day, normal life. And of course, we can go also to the life of Jesus, and it's a little bit different, and we don't have time to get into all of it. We have many details. And he himself said that he was constantly in communication with his Heavenly Father. But yet when you diagram his life, you get this little corrugated place that means we have no idea what happened. 30 years. I don't think God was silent, but I think, you know, being the Son of God, He had a different kind of relationship, one that He opens up to us through our salvation. But it's a period of time where God's instructions to Jesus was grow up and become a man. And then at His baptism, further instructions were given. So even Jesus experienced a period of time where, at least as far as what has been revealed to us, we don't know if there was that, uh, that constant thing. Now, I've, I've skimmed over these. I'd, I'd love to go into great detail in these stories and kind of work those things out a little bit, but I don't think it's accurate to say that God was silent in any of these periods. 
What's inaccurate is the way we read the Bible where we think it's just God, 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 and forget to read the spaces in between the stories that say, you know, there, there's, you know, from Moses getting in the basket till him at the burning bush is 80 years. And so uh, let's look at this one that's in our in our focus right now as we finished Malachi and we haven't started Matthew. Were they silent years? I mean, we have nothing in the Bible that speaks about these years except that they existed. But God's own word contradicts that description. If you look at these verses, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that they might receive redemption as sons. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And I think we see in those descriptions that God was not absent and God was not silent. He was bringing about exactly the conditions in world history for his son to come and for his will to be done and for his kingdom to be started. So let's just take a minute to look at a few of the things that happened during that time from the history books that can help us to understand how it was just the right time. So we understand or we know from Malachi the Persian Empire. It was the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians and the prophets that were written during that time, and, and the history books in our Old Testaments that tell us about that time. But then after Malachi, we don't have any record in our Bible of what happened in world history or in Hebrew-Jewish Jew history. Uh, we have to look to outside sources. But one thing we all know, and that I think you all could tell me, even without uh, putting the picture on the screen, is that somewhere during that time, Alexander the Great came along. He's one of our favorite stories. We've watched movies about it, uh, depictions and stuff like that. Alexander the, K the Great, the Greek Hellenistic Empire, swept across the entire ancient world. And it was very quick, it was very sudden, and it fell apart pretty quick afterwards. But what happened during that time is something that had never happened in world history before. The entire area that Alexander uh, conquered took on the Greek language. That had never happened. The other empires, you, you, you could travel 100 miles down the road and you'd be in a completely different culture, a completely different language. People would not be able to understand each other. In order for the gospel to spread as quickly as it did in the book of Acts, people need to be able to travel and talk and be understood. And Paul needed to be able to write letters and send them to the churches all across the ancient world, and they could read them and understand them. So that was new. That had never happened before in the world. And so that's unique. Uh, now, it's normal for us with English, uh, but, but the trade, trade language was Greek at that time. We, we even know from, from archaeology that common people in small villages, though they probably still spoke their traditional tribal dialect, that they could understand Greek. And the reason we know that is because archaeologists have dug up things in little villages like a sign that was posted on the side of a wall that told you where to put your garbage. Now, they wouldn't write a sign in Greek and put it up on the wall if they didn't expect the people in the village to be able to read it and understand it. So we know that it was a universal language at the time. Um, in between, after uh, the Alexander the Great, there was a period of great upheaval, 
the, the empire was divided into different kingdoms. There was a period of time during there where the, where, where the, the Holy Land was, was ruled as an independent nation uh, with their own kings, and then they're conquered, and then it goes back and forth. It was a very volatile time. And one of the things that happened during that time was the Maccabee Revolution. And uh, that, was a, that was an attempt by the Jewish people to think back to the time of David and say, if we crown a king in the line of David, and if we gather an army, God will be with us and the Messiah will come, and that will be an- the end of the other nations running over us. But it was roundly defeated, and that kind of idea was kind of removed from the Jewish mind in, in terms of a realistic expectation. And then the Romans uh, gradually took over the whole area from Great Britain to Ireland. I mean, from Great Britain to India to North Africa to up into uh, southern parts of, of Russia. And, and they, they just took that all over. And they did something again, like the Greeks. They were still speaking Greek at this time, but they did something that had never been done before. They created what is referred to, you've probably heard, the Pax Romana, the, the Peace of Rome. So you remember, uh, just going back in your memory to the, the, the remnant returning from exile, do you remember the letter that had to be sent out by the emperor and the guards that had to go along? I mean, compared to the Roman Empire and the travels of Paul, traveling from Babylon to Jerusalem was just a short trip. But they didn't expect to get there alive unless they had a large guard from the empire and letters declaring to the tribal chiefs and things are along the way that if you mess with these people you're going to be in trouble with the the big guy so it was an empire but there wasn't universal peace across it you couldn't expect to travel from babylon to jerusalem without being killed along the way but in the roman empire that changed They built the roads, they maintained them, they put up the garrisons from a few miles to a few miles. And you could expect during that time to get up in Jerusalem and travel to Ephesus, to Rome, to anywhere. And everyone expected you'd get there in one piece. You could write a letter from Rome and you could give it to someone and say, go take this to Ephesus and expect that it would get there. And this had never been seen in the world before. And so you can see how Uh, The spread of the gospel in the book of Acts was only possible for the first time in world history at this moment in time. I mean, if if it wasn't like that, they would have had to travel down the road a little ways. Then they would have had to learn the culture and language, translate the Bible and the letters into that language, take uh, 20 or 30 years to do that, and then travel down the road another 50 miles or 100 miles to the next tribe and chief and language and culture but during this roman time it could go quick now that's the that's the uh, big historical events but i think in terms of the gospel itself and the message of jesus there's there's some things that happened in terms of um jewish or hebrew culture that were possibly even of greater importance because of the the type of things that were happening through this time, various strands of spirituality, of expectation, grew up within Jewish culture. You know some of them. I'm just going to mention four. I think they're the biggest ones, and one of them maybe you haven't thought too much about or heard too much about, but the first one is the Pharisees, and you've all heard about that. Now, the Pharisees were of the opinion that spirituality, that following God, was all about moral behavior. 
If we could just get everyone to follow the law accurately enough, the Messiah would come and the moral revolution of the world would begin. And the whole world would come to live in, under the morality of, of uh, our king. You also have heard about the Sadducees. Now, they had a different tact. They have a different philosophy. They still wanted to see uh, the fulfillment of the prophets, but they weren't really looking at morality so much as they were, they were, they were kind of the compromisers. They would, they would uh, make compromises with the Roman governors and kind of make a negotiation for how they could continue to do sacrifices in the temple and, and do this and that. And uh, I, I think they're at least the ones who, who, truly, who weren't just trying to get rich individually, but who truly wanted the, the prophecies to be fulfilled, had the idea that the law of God is better than that of the other nations. And so if we just gradually move along and compromise and, and, and get along, then eventually the others will see the wisdom of God and, and it will take over the world. Kind of a political movement. Um, the zealots you've heard of, now in Jesus' time they were kind of a, not really a popular in terms of like they were at the time of the Maccabees. Uh, they'd kind of been defeated and, and people weren't really putting their hopes in a military uh, solution. But they were still there. And we hear about them and they were still causing trouble and violence. And, uh, and there was a certain attraction to that type of, um, that type of behavior or idea that that's how you follow God. And then another group that's not mentioned by name in your New Testaments but was clearly there was called the Essens. And they were, they were all about a spiritual uh, inner type of religion or type of following God. And, and their idea was to leave the cities and go off in the desert and have communities of spiritual and meditation and, and, and that the, the Messiah would come but it would be a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. And uh, I know I'm way oversimplifying these different philosophies, but what I'm trying to get at is, is just simply this. When Jesus came, he preached a spiritual kingdom. Okay, people had an understanding of that from the essence. Essence. I was going to mention, they do actually show up, I think, in your New Testament. For example, um, in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, it's quite likely that the place where the Samaritan took the wounded person the wounded traveler, was to one of these Essen communities where he could be taken care of. Uh, it's translated hotel in our Bibles, uh, but, but I, it, was, it was probably one of these places in the wilderness where the Essens were, were taking in strangers and caring for the sick and, and that sort of thing. I don't know, but, but there's hints like that where you can see that in the New Testament if you, if you pay attention, if you know what you're looking for. Um, but what I'm saying is that, that there was never before this idea of a spiritual kingdom, a spirituality in, in, in Judaism. And when Jesus came, he, he preached a spiritual kingdom. And that was something people could understand because they knew about the essence and had heard from them. But not only that, he preached that this spiritual kingdom would produce a moral revolution. People who lived actually holy lives. That ties into what the Pharisees were preaching. But he also preached, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Don't be in conflict with the nations around you. It's a spiritual kingdom. So, so, so make these compromises to, to advance the kingdom. And that was, that's what the Sadducees were talking about. And then his followers went forth with, not with violence, but with the kind of zeal that the zealots had to conquer the world. And I think 
it was just the right time for the message, for Jesus to come and preach what he preached and be who he was and show the way that he showed. Where the people who were the descendants of Abraham had these different various competing spiritual uh, or, or ways of following God that they weren't in agreement on. They were in debate all the time about these things. And Jesus came along and he said, I'm taking what you understand from each of these things and saying, this is the way. It's none of the four, but you can understand what I'm saying because you're aware of these different things. And then we read, when the fullness of time had God, Come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Was God silent for 400 years? Or was he actively involved in the history and the people to bring about exactly his will in the world? Is God silent sometimes in your life? Or is he actively involved in the details of your life? You see, we live in an in-between time. We just celebrated the communion table where we, we are told by Jesus to remember his death until he comes. And how do we remember his death? Well, we do this, of course. But we remember his teaching. We remember the greatest commandment. We remember his instructions on fellowship. We remember his instructions on loving one another and forgiving one another and feeding the poor and giving a cup of cold water. His direction was clear. We don't need a course correction until he comes. So if you look at the other Christian who has these dreams and visions and says, God told me this and God told me that, and you think, not me. Why is God giving me the silent treatment? I don't think he is. Maybe you're a Moses. You have to be 80 years old before you hear from God directly. Just keep the course. Everywhere in the Bible, there's long periods of time. We have no evidence that God changed the course. That God said anything specific other than what he had already said. It's normal as a follower of God to live according to his word without having constant... I'm not saying you shouldn't have (laughs) these experiences. I hope you all have times when you're reading your Bible and you're, God just spoke to me there. Or, or you have a dream, or you have a conversation, you think, wow, God spoke through my friend, or, you know, I hope you have those. But they're not required. They're not mandatory. They're not even necessarily common in the Bible. Even in the lives of the people who we think of as the closest to God of anybody. So I think the silent years, let us be encouraged by them. No, God is not absent. No, God is not silent. He's actively at work to bring about his ends. He was then, and he is now.
Well, let's pray together in closing. Father, we all have heard your word. We've all heard through through your word, through your teaching, through people that we talk with. We hear you at work and we hear your will being spoken. Father, I think we all know much of your will for our lives. I pray that we would go forward and, and live according to your will. And we would examine our lives and see where it is that, that you are directing. When we don't hear you, we still know that your promises are true, that none of them have, have, have been nullified. We know that the hope that we have in you is there all the time. It doesn't go away when we don't hear from you. But we, may we be mindful of that. May we remember that you are there. So we ask that by your spirit you direct and you lead us and, you, and you, that you do show us your way and then that we walk in faith and follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go and do God's will. <laughs>